As I said before, I, I certainly love Easter. Easter is certainly my favorite time of the year for a lot of different reasons. I love being outside, and uh, winter, the winter months drive me nuts. Uh, my wife will tell you that I'm always looking for something to do. I'm out in the garage trying to piddle around on things because I can't wait to get outside. I love the outdoors. And so when the temperatures warm up and there's newness of life all around, it just re reinvigorates my soul. But I love Easter for a whole other reason, because there is newness of life, but not newness in life as we think about it in the outdoors, newness of life spiritually. And I expect that there's a variety of you here this morning that as you come that you could use a little bit of that. You could use some newness of life because your life may be very similar to the disciples' lives uh, up until this first Easter Sunday. Their lives were full of discouragement and disappointment and defeat, and they didn't even know where to turn. But then came Sunday. Then came Sunday where it changed everything, that they saw evidence of the risen Savior. They saw the King of kings and the Lord of lords come back from the dead, and it changed everything. But I'd also imagine in a room this size that there's a lot of people in here that are like me, very skeptical. And I am a skeptic. I don't take anything at face value. I have got to see evidence and proof that there is such a thing. Matter of fact, when I was in college and I was uh, walking across campus on my way to practice one afternoon, I was actually walking past our chapel. And this thought popped into my head, Dave, why do you believe what you believe? It came out of nowhere. It kind of caught me off guard. And, and the next thought that popped in my head, do you believe it because you know it to be truth? Or do you believe it because you took somebody's word for it? I instantaneously was very frustrated with the answer, which was immediate for me. I believed it because I took somebody's word for it. I took my parents' word for it. I took my pastor's word for it. And I wasn't satisfied with that. And that put me on a journey that has lasted to this day of searching for truth, searching for evidence that this indeed is true. I encourage you not to take somebody's word for it. Don't take some pastor's word for it. Certainly don't take my word for it. But you figure out for yourself if this is truth. This morning I'm going to go through some evidence for the resurrection. And I'll warn you in advance, this evidence is going to bring you to a point of decision. One way or another, where you have to decide for yourself. I don't think that many people ever really get to the point where they understand the evidence enough that they realize they have to make a decision, but the reality is everybody makes a decision one way or another, and I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Risen yet, but the whole premise of the story is from the, the eyes of the Roman soldiers who were over the crucifixion. Clavius was the guy who was in charge of both the crucifixion and the manhunt afterwards to find the corpse of Jesus to prove that there's no way he could have risen from the dead. But he came to a moment of decision where he had to decide for himself, is it truth or is it falsehood? What frightens you? Being wrong and waging all of eternity on it. What we celebrate today in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the hinge pin of all of Christianity. It is what makes Christianity different than any other religion out there, is the claim that Jesus came back from the dead. If this claim is true, 
then everything changes. If this claim is true, then we can trust what is within the pages of the Bible. We can trust God's word. But if it is not, it brings all this into doubt. And so this morning, I want to share with you, there's so many things that I want to share with you that I have learned in my journey of trying to understand the evidence that's out there. And as Josh McDowell says, it is such overwhelming evidence that demands a verdict. I wanted to share with you seven different things this morning. We're not even going to get through two and a half of them. But I want to whet your appetite for the evidence that's found both in Scripture and just the simple logical evidence that's out there to prove that the resurrection took place. Because it changes everything. And when we understand the resurrection, it gives life. It gives meaning. But you know what? Dead people just don't come back from the dead. It is something that is inconceivable. It is incomprehensible. It just doesn't make sense because it's impossible. Dead people don't come back to life. And yet that's what Jesus claimed. That's what the Bible claims. That's what the whole basis of Christianity is based upon, is that he came back from the dead. And so I've titled the title of my sermon today, Waging Eternity, Evidence for the Resurrection. There's lots of things that we could look at this morning, but I want to start by looking at the claims of Jesus himself. You know, that what did he claim about himself? What did he claim about the resurrection? And the first thing is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. A lot of people don't realize this. You know, in fact, other religions don't realize that Jesus himself claimed to be God. In, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. I am being the very words of I am being God. Later on in, in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, you may think, well, okay, he just said that. But hey, when you look at what the Jews understood him to say, they understood him to claim that he was God. The first time he said it, they tried to stone him and he was able to slip away. But do you understand that Jesus was murdered for this claim? He was crucified for proclaiming to be God. And so not only did Jesus himself proclaim to be God, but Jesus predicted his own resurrection. Now this is, this is mind-boggling when you think about it. He claimed to be God. He claimed his, that he was going to die and come back from the dead. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he said this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man may suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then after that, three days later, that he would rise again. In Matthew 17, verse 22, he said this as well. He says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to him, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And the people who heard this were greatly distressed. They didn't understand what he was saying. And so we have the claims of Jesus to be God himself. We have the claims of Jesus that he was going to, to suffer but then, and die and come back to death three days later. When you look at the claims of Jesus, there's, best I can tell, only three logical conclusions. Josh McDowell, I believe, was the first to put these logical conclusions out there. The first is that he was a lunatic, that he had no idea what he was saying, that he was a crazy man. But it doesn't take much to look at his teachings, to look at how he, he, he tangled with the chief priests, he tangled with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious leaders of the day. It doesn't take much to look at the way he was able to teach to realize that there's no way he was lunatic. The next logical conclusion is that he was a liar. 
that he knew that he was not the Son of God, even though he claimed it, that he knew that he wasn't who he said he was, which points us to the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't play, take place, then it proves that he was a liar. So you have it that he was either a lunatic, he was a liar, or the third and only other logical conclusion that I can come up with is in, he indeed was who he said he was. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the great I am. God himself in the flesh. Now, being the skeptic that I am, uh, and certainly was back in my college days, just because he claimed these things is not enough for me. I'm not at this at this point in the evidence. I was still not convinced that he rose again from the dead. And so I continued on this search. Yeah, I know what the Bible said, but I continued on this search to be able to prove even outside of the Bible that the resurrection actually took place. Logically, I was not convinced. Now, I grew up in church. I went to a Christian school. I knew all the church answers, but I was not 100 percent convinced that the resurrection took place. And I was very uncomfortable with that. And so I began to look at the empty tomb. You know, and people say, well, the tomb is empty, but we need to be careful with that. Just because there's an empty tomb does not prove a resurrection, right? It just proves that there's an empty tomb. And so when we look at the why was there an empty tomb, I think there's a variety of logical conclusions we can come to of the possibilities of what happened with the empty tomb. The very first is this, that Jesus' adversary stole the body and hid it, Right? I mean, that's a possibility. The tomb is definitely empty. I think we know that from history. We know that from what the Bible says. We know that from what the Jewish leaders said. So what happened then to the body? Well, his, the, his adversaries could have taken it and hid it. But when you look at the response of the Jewish leaders, when you look at the, the response of the world, it makes no sense because all they would have had to have done to stop Christianity in his tracks is to provide the body. Say, look, there he is. He didn't come back from the dead. There he is. He's dead. They couldn't do that, right? And so Christianity was not stopped in his tracks. And so the second, the second logical observation is that the disciples stole the body. It's possible, maybe even certainly more probable or plausible than the first, that the disciples stole the body and that they hid it. Now, it's interesting that the Jewish leaders were so concerned about this that let me show you what they did in Matthew chapter 28 verses 62 and following, it says this, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last for all would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They were so concerned that the disciples would steal the body and do the same thing, then hide him and say, hey, he came back from the dead, that they went to Pilate himself, and Pilate said, go ahead and put a guard there. Now let me just make sure that you understand what this guard was. A guard was not one guy standing out front with a weapon. A guard would have been a a group of 15 Roman soldiers that together would have been standing watch by the tomb. They took the tomb and they put a Roman seal on, on the tomb. They were protecting the Roman seal, standing guard in front of the tomb. Do you understand what the, if somebody broke the seal, do you understand what the punishment was? Death. This was a very serious thing. And so is it possible that the disciples stole the body? Of course it is. 
But how do they get past 15 Roman soldiers who, if the seal is broken, are in serious trouble, who, if they fell asleep on duty, would have been executed themselves? How do they do that? I don't know, but it is possible. But here's some convincing evidence to me. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 through 15, it says this, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, and they told the chief priest all that had taken place. They said, The tomb is empty, it's gone. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Hey, tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. Remember, falling asleep on duty would be execution. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you guys out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread to the Jews to this day. Now you might say, well, that's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal because if indeed the disciples stole the body, don't you think that they'd be proclaiming that as truth, not the fact that the soldiers fell asleep? When you sit and think just pure logically of the events that we have recorded in Scripture, of the events that we can see even throughout history, the evidence begins to build to the point that we have to make a decision. So we have the potential that his adversaries stole the body, the potential that the disciples stole the body. Then there's another theory that came out that Jesus was never actually dead in the first place. Right, So we have, and we'll see this more in a moment, that there was evidence that Jesus was alive, that people had seen him after the fact. And so this idea that is called the swoon theory has surfaced that said, you know what, he never died in the first place. When they stuck him in this cold, dark tomb, he came back to life. Again, I'm a skeptic, right? I don't take anything at face value, and I go, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? I mean, let's just think logically for a second. He was scourged. You know, Eusebius has said this, that when somebody went through the flogging, you know, and I don't want to get into great detail, but you think of this multifaceted whip that had pieces of bone and metal and stuff in it, that when it came across your back and it was ripped across, by the time you had 39 lashes, your body was laid bare, you could see your internal organs hanging out. And so they put him in, the, he was swooned, which means he was unconscious, he was really not breathing, you couldn't detect a heart rate, even though he's still alive, and you put him in a tomb and he's going to come back to life? Highly improbable and unlikely, but all right, let's just follow your line of logic for a moment. Let's say he does come back to life and he revives. How does he move the stone away from the inside? Let's just say he does that. How does he get past 15 Roman guards. Let's say he does that. How does a man in that state appear to the disciples and convince them he came back from the dead? You see, the evidence starts to well up. But some people still think, well, he wasn't dead. Well, you know, what's fascinating to me, being the skeptic that I am as I continue to study, I got into all sorts of medical evidence, and I'll only give you two pieces of it today. I don't want to bore you with this, and if you are interested in this, you can look for it yourself. But because of the blood loss that he had, Jesus would have gone into what is called hypovolemic shock. And there's four things that would have happened uh, in this, in the extreme loss of blood, that the heart races to pump blood that is no longer there. And so the heartbeat would have increased rapidly. The blood pressure drops so much because of the lack of blood that it would cause fainting and collapse. 
Sound familiar on the evidence of Jesus walking the road, carrying the cross where he falls, you know, and we have to have somebody else carry the cross? The kidneys would have stopped producing urine to maintain any volume that is left because of the extreme loss of blood, and the body would have become so incredibly thirsty and craving fluids to replace them. Again, you see the evidence in here where Jesus was thirsty and refused to drink. Medical evidence today shows that he was in such a state of criticalness that he most likely wouldn't have survived. And then we come to the word of God in John 19. It says this, one of the soldiers. Remember that the Roman soldiers were schooled in what death looked like. In fact, the Roman soldiers that would have been over the the criminal that was being crucified, if the criminal wasn't dead, guess what the punishment was? Death. And so one of the soldiers who, who pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Which, which shows this whole idea of um, hypovolemic shock, that the fluids would have gone and surrounded the heart. There's also something called pericardial effusion, where, where the, the, the fluids would have gone around the heart. There would be pellucidal effusion, where there would be fluid in the lungs. And so when that spear went in the side, medical evidence today shows that, yeah, he was in serious condition. Well, guess where else the spear went? Right through his heart. And yet people today want to say, yeah, there's evidence that he was seen afterwards, but he he couldn't have died. He did. The Bible gives us plenty of evidence of that. History of what we understand from crucifixion gives us evidence of that. I don't know if you realize this, but the natural death of crucifixion was asphyxiation. That when your hands were put up there on this cross... And, and, and the, the nails through your ankles. I mean, think about this for a moment. After the fact, he had his ankles pierced. How could he walk? Let alone convince the disciples that he had come back from the dead. He's pierced in the side. Out comes water and blood. That We now have all kinds of medical evidence to know the condition that he was in. He would not have survived. What's interesting that the rest of this verse says, He who saw it is born witness, and his testimony is true, so that you also may believe. You know, not even one of his bones was broken. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they looked on him who hath been pierced. Normally, asphyxiation would be the process. As the day got longer, what they would do is break the femurs so that the person could not push up on those ankles that were pierced just to get enough off his diaphragm so he could breathe. Jesus was already dead. The soldier's standing there, and he wants to confirm death, so he pierces him in the side to confirm that he was already dead so that they wouldn't break his legs. So the His adversaries could have stole the body. His disciples could have stole the body. He could have maybe not been dead, which I think we've just proven. There's only one other logical conclusion. God raised him from the dead. When you go through all the others and there's nothing left, the only logical conclusion is left is what the Bible says, what Jesus claimed, is that God raised him from the dead. Now, I I really am a skeptic. And as much as I want to believe that, what's the evidence for that? I, I... 
I'm just being honest. I can't believe that just because that's the last thing standing, the last possible piece of evidence standing. I want more. Again, when you go back to the Bible, the Bible's made all sorts of predictions, all sorts of prophecies about things to come. It has prophesied the birth of Christ, the location of the birth of Christ, how he was going to be born, but it also prophesied his death and his resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22, we see the, the evidence of crucifixion. We see all the things that we know that happened. You know, and here's the crazy thing to me, that, that a thousand years and 700 years before when those books were written, it predicted how he was going to die. Do you understand that crucifixion hadn't even been dreamt up yet? The Romans weren't in power yet, and they hadn't even thought about it, and yet the Bible had predicted these things. It's amazing to me. When you start stacking all this evidence up. But maybe you, like me, maybe not totally convinced. There's one more thing I want to share with you today. And there's so many more things that I'd like to share with you that we just simply don't have time to share. After the fact, he was seen by hundreds. Right, the Bible says he was seen by more than 500 people. I think we've proven clearly that he was definitely dead. We know from history that the tomb was empty. What is the only other logical conclusion that 500 people have seen him? Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 9. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says this, Now I, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the words that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. I think everybody believes that. But here's the claim of the Bible itself. And that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then the twelve, the twelve disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, who was a skeptic. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is Paul speaking for himself. He said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. This is a very significant passage of Scripture, one in which began to change my mind. As I looked at the evidence, and I don't have time to go into this, of the changed lives of the disciples. You look at this, what Paul is basically saying, look, hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. He begins to name them here. He says, they're alive. You go ask them and interview them for yourself. There is overwhelming evidence that he died. He was buried according to scriptures and that according to the scriptures that he came back from the dead on the third day. And guess what? Hundreds and hundreds of people have seen him. Do you realize that if we were to put those 500 people on a witness stand to give their testimony of what they've seen and to allow time for cross-examination and we only gave them 15 minutes to do that, that it would be 125 hours of witness testimony. That we would, if we started at breakfast on Friday morning and went 24 hours a day, that we would go straight to dinner on Friday with testimony of people saying, I saw him. It would be the most lopsided courtroom testimony of all time. 
And yet some still aren't sure. This brings us back to the very question we started with. What frightens you? What frightens you from believing that Jesus was who he said he was? Here's the reality. Eternity is being waged on the answer of that question. Eternity is in the balance. I want to close with two more passages of Scripture. One is the words of Jesus as he met with a young lady. He said to her, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her this question, which I pose to you. Do you believe this? In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul, as he was trying to share this same story of the resurrected Jesus, said this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he indeed is the Son of God, that you are convinced that he was of God, that he came and took on human flesh, and that he, he died as God, because there's nobody that could pay the penalty for sin other than God himself. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's what this verse says, which affirms what Jesus said. You will be saved. For it is with the heart, the heart that one believes. It's not an intellectual assent. It's with the heart that one believes and is justified. And it is with the mouth that they confess their belief in Jesus Christ and are saved. All of eternity balances on this very decision. So like Claudius in the movie, what frightens you? Being wrong and waging all of eternity on it. Here in a moment, we're going to close by singing a song that's based on this passage in 1 Corinthians says, we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe in new life. Why? Because he came back from the dead. I have no idea where you are today. But I'm convinced that there's some of you here today that are like I was. Total skeptics. Some might be here today thinking that in order to believe in this, I have to commit intellectual suicide. And I hope that with the evidence that's been presented, that you see with new sight. It's not absurdity. There's so much factual evidence for the proof of resurrection that it demands a verdict. As we sing this song, we'll have people down front that if you have questions, you have more questions about this, I personally would love myself to sit down with you and to share all these other things that I wasn't able to get to this morning of the evidence for the resurrection. There's still four more things that I wanted to share this morning, and that's still not all that's out there. If, if you aren't sure, we have counselors here that would love to, to get your information and, and talk to you today. But I understand that people don't want to do that, that people don't want to come down front. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put this number back up on the screen. It's the same number if you came and, and you texted welcome to. They just let us know. But it's a little bit different. Get your smartphone out and, and the same number. I just want you to text believe. If you maybe for the first time have finally come to the point that you say, I believe this. 
and I want to make a profession of faith, just text for me. I'm the one that gets this. You text believe to this number, and I will get in touch with you. I will get you more information. I will sit down and counsel with you and get you involved in understanding more truths that the resurrection really took place and how your life, like the disciples, can be transformed forever. But even if you're not sure and you want more information and you don't want to come forward, do the same thing. Just get out your smartphone, 757-632. I sound like a salesman now. 3330. And you just text the word believe to that. I'm the one who gets it, and I'll be in touch with you. But as we sing this song, I want you to declare your absolute worship and glory and your belief in Jesus Christ as we sing this song. And I might just say that the way that you sing it, the volume that you sing it, is the degree to which you are saying, I believe. Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God rose him from the dead to prove who he was once for all to give us new life? Let me pray. Father, I am so grateful for your gospel. I am so grateful for Jesus and what he has done in his absolute humility to come and take on human flesh and then to die in my place to die in our place. And so, Father, I pray that right now that you would allow the evidence to be so overwhelming that it demands a verdict, that you would allow people that are wrestling this right now to have the courage to come and say, I need some help. I don't understand, but I want to understand. God, for those of us to believe, as we come right now and we declare our belief in you, God, I pray that it would be a sweet-smelling aroma of our gratitude, our graciousness, and our absolute worship of who you are. Jesus, thank you, not just for dying for my sins, but for proving who you are by coming back from the dead. In Jesus' name.